kind of bread. Chris McLeish, here we are, episode number 51. 51. Let's make it fun. Woo! Have you... Check the nick of this, just as we start recording. Look at that rain. Can you see the rain out my window? I can see the rain out your window. Wow. Is it raining just here? out of nowhere, it started to pour. It's properly pouring. That's like you break down in the middle of a spooky road pouring of rain. Yeah, I'm going to start playing some spooky piano music and going, <laughs> and then I'm going to take to the streets in a nightgown and then I'll let my hair hang down in front of my face and scare the passersby. I can see that working quite effectively. I've always wanted to do it. It's the it's one step away from climbing out of people's TVs, but I'm not quite sure how to do that yet. That film scarred me. That out. I watched that film far too young. It's a rough film, yeah. Um, well, how bleeding are you? I'm okay. I am here and present, and that's all we can ask for today. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's how we're doing. Um, but no, I'm that's fine. Right. Now. There are other, like, book retailers available in the world. But, I mean, I'm, I'm partial to a wee wander around the Waterstones every now and then. Mm-hmm. And, oh boy, did I spend a small fortune in Waterstones yesterday. First of all, yes. thank you for pronouncing Waterstones the same I pronounce Waterstones. You are so welcome. I'm pleased that we are, like, united in this front. I've had so many people literally shout water stones in my face. I'm like, don't be like this. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't your mother train you better? <laughs> be chill. Because uh, yeah. I have always said Watersons. Watersons. Yeah. It's, you say it quickly. Yeah. You yeah. don't stress. The stones. No. The water is what matters. The Look water. at the rain. <laughs> exactly. The it's, world agrees. It's very on brand. Um... Yeah, was it a second thing or was that just the thing? Uh, I forgot what the second thing was, but it's easy to spend a fortune in Watersons. It's very easy to spend a, uh, a fortune there. Um, but I yeah. got some fun books. One of what one which was recommended to me by a mutual work friend of ours, which features um, a murder and a detective and Shakespearean actors. Fabulous. And I thought, that sounds very much up my street. And then another little book that's quite relevant to a story that you did mere weeks ago. Yes. Mere weeks ago. Yes. I saw it lying on a table and I was like, I know that. I know that name. Um, But yes, I can't remember the full name of it and I don't have the book handy. But from the blurb, (laughs) it appears to be like a a historical fiction telling of um, what happened to Lady Grange on the Isle of St Kilda. Do you know, it will be interesting to read that because I've actually thought about what it would be like to do a play. <gasps> we can make this happen. Lady Grange. Yeah, that would be cool. But that's fun. I How weird that it's a story that we'd never really heard of. No, and then there's a whole you book find about a it. novel. Yeah. I love that. It was great because there was a whole table that was just like kind of Scottish mystery and crime and kind of like history stuff. And I was like, 
Oh, there goes my wages. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How be your life? Well, not too bad. Yesterday I was at an acting workshop thing because mm-hmm. my friend has written a show and he's very nicely asked me if I would be a participant in workshopping it. Beautiful. In its early stages. So it's the first time it's been kind of performed. It's a Christmas... Oh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say. I better not. But it's a, <laughs> it's a show for kind of Christmas time. Okay. And uh, I play a couple of really fun characters. Excellent. I can't say any more than that. There I don't you go. Think. Cryptic. At this moment in time. Um, but yeah, it's just kind of the early stages playing around with the songs and kind of putting it on its feet and playing around with it to see what we can do to make it as funny as it can be. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of fun. It's the first time I've been involved in that kind of workshopping thing for quite a while. Yeah. It's also just nice to be performing for a bit. No, that's fair. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. fair enough. I very much miss it. I um, know. It will come back properly yeah. eventually. It will. That's the only thing I can think of that's interesting. <laughs> I've been watching a lot of horror films. Oh, um, it's the right season for it. Yeah, I try to watch a new horror thing every day during October. Oh my god, that is a commitment. Yeah, it is, especially because I don't really watch that much TV anyway. So it's a bit, it does take a bit of, like, focus. Yeah. I have to be like, McLeish, you're doing your your Halloween uh, (laughs) kind of watch face. Yes, yes, yes. So... I've watched the first two Halloween movies. I'm going to work my way through those because I haven't seen all of them uh, before. They're really bad. What, the original ones or like the remakes? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, they're really bad. Well, no, which ones? I gave you two options. You can't just say yes. The the old ones, the old ones. (laughs) the old ones. (laughs) Yeah, the old ones are really bad. Oh, but not in like a kind of like ironic way, just as in a haven't aged well way. Just in a horror these days is so much better way. Okay, fair enough. The music is very good. The music's very intense. Mm-hmm. Whenever Michael Myers just all of a sudden appears on, yeah. s- on screen, that's yeah. always very good. But most of the people who get killed are terrible actors. And I don't recognise them, so they've probably not done much since. <laughs> the second one is so slow and so it's clear that they wrapped shooting the first one and they thought, let's make the second one a, an, an immediate continuation of the first movie. Yes. Except Jamie Lee Curtis has a different hairstyle, so let's pop her in the most heinous wig we have. <laughs> and let's give her blocking that means her character has to forget that she's got a leg with broken bones in it. Oh, okay. So she's hobbling along and then out of nowhere, she starts sprinting and then has a brief moment of like, oh yeah, oh, ow, oh, ah. <laughs> it's just, it's very jarring. It's not good. No, that's fair. That's fair enough. Yeah. Oh my God. So that's what I've been doing. I don't have, I haven't watched one today. Okay. Oh no, that's a lie. Over lunch, I was watching a new season, a, a, a program that is a spin-off of I Know What You Did Last Summer. It's also trash, but it's sometimes watching something trashy horrors like it's not bad. No, that's fair. That's fair. Sometimes Sometimes that can be fun. Trashy horror is what you need. Yeah. Yeah. So really, 
what I'm asking is if anyone has any recommendations, fire them my way because I will watch them. Exactly. I have a lot of time. Now, I don't have a lot of time, but I've got a lot of passion. Yes, exactly. Also, you will make the time. I will find the time because I'm trying to watch one every day and I don't like failing at things. So there you are. That's what I've been doing. Excellent. Well, that's good fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. What can you say that? Oh, yes. Now we have to clear something up. So obviously we were late last week with our episode and we do sincerely apologize. Mm-hmm. But we did actually say that our good friend and fellow podcast fan and um, guest of the podcast, Jen Lindsay, was very upset about us not being on time when actually she hadn't said that at all and we just lied. So we do apologise, Jen, and please don't sue us for libel. (laughs) Yeah, please don't. Uh, (laughs) We were not forgiven for being late. um, Yeah. By Jen. Yep. Sorry. Sorry, Sorry, she didn't make that comment at all. (laughs) We just like to wash wash the dirt off our hands (laughs) without permission. We just, we don't want to have any kind of blame. We don't want to have any fingers pointed at us. So instead we chop those fingers off and pretend that there was no hand attached to those fingers. Was that a wild metaphor? (laughs) (laughs) You just kept going. (laughs) I did. You just kept going. Hmm. Um, I kind of liked it. Yeah, it was good. It was poetic in a way. Yeah, just call me uh, Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, that's a good that's one. That's the kind of thing he'd that's come up with. That's a good one. Fair, again, on brand for what we do here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Shall we waste no more time and just fire straight in to the woman of the hour, Little to Miss Hat? Little Miss Hat. Da, da, da. I like this question because it's completely okay. and utterly random. And I mm. like it. I like it. So, McLeish, what animal perplexes you? Mm. How intriguing. Good, que- good question. Strong question. Very good question. I've often wondered if a turtle's neck skin is attached to its shell or not. <laughs> I don't know if it is, because if it's not, then sand and stuff will get in, and it doesn't have the dexterity Ooh. to clean. So I assume their skin must be attached to the shell, but I've never known. So that's quite perplexing. Have you never had the opportunity to ask one personally? No, no, I've never. I thought it was rude. Do you know what I mean? No, that's you don't fair. just you don't ask someone about their skin situation the first time you True. meet. That's very true. You wouldn't do that. That's bad form. I'm also marsupials in general. I find quite strange. Is that animals with pockets? Yeah, pockets. Women of this world would kill for pockets just in their clothes. Exactly. And there's some animals have got them built in. Absolutely. That's it fabulous. is a struggle to find pockets in trousers, let alone. I mean, if you find a dress or a skirt with pockets, that really is like finding gold dust. It is very true that all these little animals can just wander around with their own little personal anatomy bag. <laughs> oh, anatomy bag. Mm. <laughs> I, I, that, I, I, no, that's not the phrase that I meant to come out my mouth, but it happened. Well, this is what happens when we keep recording at night. Yeah, we're idiots. 
but we are unfortunately our lives dictate it so at the minute how about yourself is there anything that well, is yes so you know how uh, when the groundbreaking 1993 film Jurassic Park came out yes um, yeah. I don't know if you've heard of it I think so yeah you think so yeah um, and then it transpired after so all the animals in that are quite reptilian mm-hmm. like if you think of the raptors they just look like a pair of big lizards on their back legs yeah that's true that yes. is true you're um, not wrong and not <laughs> not long after that real paleontologists um, came out and said actually we think that dinosaurs I do have a point here I do promise I know it's half 11 <laughs> at night and I sound like a rambling but I do have a point here that said dinosaurs are actually more descended likely to be like descended from to what am I talking about? <laughs> birds. What my point is, is that birds are more likely to have come from dinosaurs than reptiles. That is my yes. point. <laughs> yeah, 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 um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and chances are that, um, like, dinosaurs would have had feathers. I love They would that. have been more bird-like in, like, yeah. their little mannerisms. They'd give Big Bird a run for his money. Absolutely. Now, let me put this to you. Tell me, when you look at an ostrich, you don't think it's a dinosaur. Interesting. They can have quite the temper on them. Do you know what I mean? I've heard um, anecdotes about T-Rexes that they had quite a temper on them. Absolutely, exactly. it It would make sense. It would make sense. But, like, I think if you ever want proof that... Birds come from dinosaurs. Watch an ostrich or an emu, because okay, they're quite creepy looking. They look a bit dinosaur-y, the way they kind of mm-hmm. like, and also like see when an ostrich looks at you, you can tell it's trying to work out the way in which it would kill you. I see. Are are they carnivorous or are they notivorous? I've got a feeling they're notivorous. I but see. see like how an ostrich like looks at you is how I think like a raptor would look at you. Yeah. It's a shame that they're not around anymore, the things like raptors and brachiosaurus. Do you have a favourite dinosaur? I quite like the big ones with the big long necks. Is that a brachiosaurus? I think it's a brachiosaurus. That's my favourite because they were herbivores. They were herbivores. See, this is the thing about Jurassic Park. Why didn't you just make the herbivores? Yeah, exactly. We didn't need big, scary (laughs) meat munchers. We didn't need that. We didn't need that. Because do you know what? The big brachiosauruses and triceratopses were just quite happy wandering about eating the grass. 100%. They were living their best life. If you roll by in a big plastic ball, they just leave you to it. Exactly. They're not trying to eat you. I'll tell you this. I read okay. recently that they suspect Tyrannosaurus rexes could actually only run between 5 and 15 miles per hour, which means humans <laughs> could technically outrun Tyrannosaurus rexes. That is very exciting, although I've just got an image of a Tyrannosaurus, Tyrannosaurus rex doing like slow motion running like chariots of fire. <laughs> oh. Do, 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 do. Exactly. I'm not very good at dinosaur sound effects. 
No, that's fair enough. They are quite no. tricky. Yes, that is my point, is that ostriches and demus very much perplex me because I fully believe that they are just dinosaurs in disguise. There's something quite confusing about something with such a long neck. Exactly. Well. Maybe that's the thing. Maybe that's why it's disconcerting. I believe that an ostrich's head, brain is the smallest brain of an animal in proportion to its body. That would check out because they have tiny little I think little they're heads. thick as mints. Yeah. I'm sure that's a thing. But also, giraffes. What are they up to? Giraffes. Their necks are so long. They batter each other with them. <laughs> It's like, it's like watching two children play with blow-up balloon swords smacking each other. It is. But they... <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand how they support themselves. It's true. Why do they not just fall over? Yeah. I wonder if giraffes, when they're babies, are born with um, stabilizers, and then the stabilizers fall off when they reach a certain Aww. age. That's probably what it is. That's, probably, that's the part of it we don't see. We're yeah. not party to that. No, they keep that would they keep sense. them indoors for that phase because it's quite embarrassing, really. It's like learning how yeah, to ride a exactly. bike. It is quite it's quite embarrassing when you first start. It is. It is. That's fair enough. Especially when you fall That's over into enough. a bush like me. <laughs> why that. am I? Why am I unsurprised that you did that? Yeah. Did you break anything in the process? No. Oh, well done. Although I do remember when I was about six years old in that very same bush, I found a discarded breath freshener. <laughs> <laughs> like a spray a breath freshener spray can uh, i ask I, why you were in the bush twice uh, well i had a well i used to play in the bushes a lot so okay i had a den i think my mum tells this story better than i do but i'm sure that when i was we, we went, i went into our old back garden and i was happy as larry because i found a den in the garden and it was uh-huh. literally the back end of a bush and I the thought, back end of a bush. Yeah. And I used to take, I had a stool. I took uh-huh. it. It was kind of like a hollowed out bush, but you had to go okay. around the back. Yes. And I used to take a stool in there with me and I'd sit in the bush. <laughs> I didn't have many friends. You're limited with choice, really, in the small villages. Was um, it a, did you invite people round to the bush? No, don't think so. I don't think I had anyone no. to invite. No, that's fair. And it probably wouldn't have fitted more than one person. Exactly. It would have had been quite a, it would have had to have been like a one in one out type of situation yeah. going on. You'd be like, pop inside, have a look at what I've done with the place. They'd pop in and I'd be like, okay, you have to come out now and go home because I need to go in. <laughs> yeah, that's probably what happened. Um, oh, this conversation has taken a very bizarre turn. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Well, we put the question to you if there's any perplexing animals that you think we should know about fire away absolutely slow lorises they've got eyes like saucers they do and another thing sloths oh yeah they move very slowly i love them and i'm very sure that i'm probably descended from one of them Mm. because i can move very slowly when i want to like sloths very much feel like some kind of evolutionary throwback yeah, they survived the Ice Age. Yeah, exactly. They are old. But I, I read once that like sloths are known just to fall from their deaths because they can't be bothered to hold on to the tree anymore. Oh, that's quite sad. But also, fair enough. Yeah, I mean, I'm just like, mm, 
Yep, that's that's. But they're very cute, and apparently they're very soft. Yeah, I'd like to cuddle with one. Have you ever seen the yeah. video of Kristen Bell meeting a sloth for the first time and she has a full blown mental breakdown? I've not seen that, but I have seen the video of um, Steve Irwin's son. Is that the right person? Yeah, Steve Irwin, Crocodile Hunter man. Yeah, thing person. Yeah, Crocodile Hunter. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, he his son brought a sloth onto the Tonight Show. Oh right, and that was that was very cute. That was very cute. Well, Kristen Bell's favorite animal is a sloth, and Fair. she her husband Dax Shepard surprised mm-hmm. her with one for her birthday, and she had a panic attack because she was so <laughs> excited. It's very cute. That is adorable. Oh my god. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm first this week, aren't I? You are indeed. Well, we mentioned uh, Dundee. Dundee, weirdly enough, is kind of relevant. Way. Yeah. Well, specifically, we mentioned Crocodile Dundee. It's a different thing. But you know what I mean. <laughs> okay. So, William Henry Burry. Have you heard of this man? I don't know. Okay, we'll find out. He was born in Hill Street, Stourbridge, Worcestershire. Well. These are English name places, so I feel like I'm going to say them like... They're Scottish, like Stourbridge. It could be Stourbridge. Stourbridge <laughs> and Worcestershire. Is it Worcestershire or is it Worcester? Is that not two different places? I don't know. <laughs> Frankly. Well, this man, Big Willie, Big Willie Henry Burry, was born on the 25th of May, 1859. His father, Henry who worked for a local fishmonger called Jocelyn. Um, I don't know if the fishmonger was like a shop called Jocelyn or if it was just a woman that he, she called herself the fishmonger. Yep. Uh, he died in a horse and cart accident in Halswin on the 10th of April, 1860. Okay. While on an incline, he fell beneath the wheels of his fish cart and was killed when the horse bolted and pulled the cart over his prone body. Well, there's a rough way to go. Oh, no. Yes. William's mother may have been suffering at this time from postnatal depression and was committed to Worcester County Pauper and Lunatic Asylum on the 7th of May, 1860, suffering from melancholia, which we would now recognise as depression. But back in the day, it was just a wee bit of sadness. Let's lock her up. Uh, She remained there until her rather premature death at the age of 33 on the 30th of March, 1864, at which point William was about five, or just about to turn five. Mm -hmm. So he's already lost both his parents. Mm -hmm. Not a good time. William's eldest sibling, Elizabeth Ann, died at the age of seven during an epileptic fit on the 7th of September, 1859, which may have further contributed to the depression of his mother, Mary. William had long been rumoured to live initially in Dudley with his maternal uncle, Edward Henley, but this is unlikely, uh, this is likely untrue. Mm -hmm. And he actually went to live with a close family friend. So she took pity upon the children after losing both their parents and provided 
them with a solid education and at the age of 16 helped William to find work as a factor's clerk in a local warehouse. In 1881's census, he is listed under the surname Berry. Don't know why. Don't know why. Might have been okay. a misprint because uh, his name is Burry, like B-U-R-Y, mm. and it was, but it was Berry. There is no record in this census of his other brother and sister or their whereabouts at that time, but it's believed the other two children, Joseph Henry and Mary Jane, both died before 1889. So the whole family's falling to bits. Hmm. So at the age of 16, he'd managed to land this warehouse job, but had to leave in early 1880s after failing to make repayments on a loan. He then worked for a lock manufacturer called Osborne in Wolverhampton until he was dismissed for theft between 1884 and 85. For the next few years, his whereabouts are uncertain, but he appears to have lived an unsettled life up to this stage. It sounds very much like that is the case. Yeah. In 1887, he was making a living living as a hawker, selling small items such as pencils and keyrings on the streets of Birmingham. Hawkers are defined as travelling, wandering salespeople who shout a lot. And that, to me, sounds pretty grim. Yes. So they're the ones that are like, apples, you want some apples? In the streets. (laughs) Or in Oliver, the ripe strawberries ripe. That kind of folk. Lovely. Yes. But this guy would be like, pencils, get your pencils. In October 1887, William arrived in Bow, London, and found work selling sawdust. Why would you sell Who knew sawdust? That was a treat? I mean, I know that you need it for rabbits, rabbits and hamsters, but other than that, yeah, yeah, hmm. I don't know, don't know why you needed sawdust. But he was selling it for a man called James Martin, presumably not the Saturday morning chef. Yeah, I would. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm who appears to have also run a brothel at 80 Quicket Street. If you're going to have a brothel, it's best to put it in a street that's got a name like Quicket. <laughs> if you know what I mean. True. It's true. Initially, yeah. Initially, Buddy lived in the stable of this address, but oh. later moved into the house where he met Ellen Elliot, who was employed by Martin as a servant and possibly one of the sex workers in the brothel. Ellen was born on the 24th of October, 1856, at the Bricklayer's Arms pub run by her father, George Elliot. In adult life, she worked as a needlewoman and in a jute processing factory. In 1883, she had an illegitimate daughter, also called Ellen, but she died in Poplar Workhouse in December, 1885. Poplar Automatically makes me think of Call the Midwife. Literally was about to say that. <laughs> yes. Although this happened before Call the Midwife Fair began. Fair enough. Because yep. if this was around about the time Call the Midwife started, those midwives would be a good 80 years old in the show, and they're not. They would be. They would yes. be. Although, could you imagine Call the Midwife 1880s? Oof. That'd be rough. It, would, it could only be grimmer. Did they even have midwives in those days, or did they just get on with it themselves? Nah, the maybe depend. Maybe depending on the amount of money you had. True. They probably just invited round their 
aunties and things. Aunties probably yeah, helped each other out. Basically, just any woman that had a vague idea of what childbirth was. Have you ever had a baby? You have? <laughs> All right, come in. I'm about to have mine. Um, yep. So within a year the death in, of the death of her daughter, she began to work for Mr. Martin. Ellen was well known and respected among family and friends and was known as quite an inoffensive woman woman who had seemed very happy until she married Burry. She was described okay. as a neatly dressed woman, fair-haired, slim, and of a genteel appearance. In March of 1888, Ellen and William left Martin's employ and moved to a furnished room where they lived together until their marriage on Easter Monday, the 2nd of April, 1888, in Bromley. So Mr. Martin later said that he had dismissed William because of unpaid debts. On one hand, we have debt boy supreme Mr. Burry, and we have the gentle-natured Ellen, who had been left a legacy of bank bank and railway shares from an aunt to the value of 300 pounds which is roughly 20,000 pounds in today's dollars Ellen invested this money wisely purchasing shares in the Union Bank of London so they're not necessarily a match made in heaven because she is very sensible with the money whereas he is a big debt boy okay James Martin and the landlady at the lodgings where Ellen and William stayed, who was called Elizabeth Haynes, described William as a violent drunk. On the 7th of April, 1888, Elizabeth caught William kneeling over Ellen just five days after their wedding, threatening to cut her throat with a knife which he held in his left hand. Delightful. Oh, dear. Elizabeth promptly evicted them, and Ellen sold one of six shares in the railway company to pay William's debt back to James Martin. William was re-employed by Martin, for some reason, and the couple moved to a new home. According to Martin, William at this stage was suffering from venereal disease. Yes. I don't know how he could know this without checking or without... I don't know, smelling it in the air or something. (laughs) (laughs) Disgusting. (laughs) Although if he runs a brothel, perhaps he's familiar with signs. Exactly. He's probably familiar. I would think so. Because 1880s brothels were not known for their cleaning standards. Yeah. Healthy practices. I don't know. Yeah. Around this time... Ellen confided to the Martins that her husband often stayed out until the early hours, sometimes disappearing for days before reappearing worse for wear from the drink. Exactly where he went and what he did up, what he got up to, she did not know. James, on at least two occasions, witnessed William assault his wife in public, and Ellen would often be seen displaying the facial marks resulting from a beating. Ellen also told the Martins that her husband slept with a penknife under his pillow and that he had infected her with a venereal disease. Maybe that's also how um, James knew, because she told him. Yes. I did write this, but I wrote this like two weeks ago. 
Uh, and she believed that her husband would kill her is something that she admitted to James and his family. Okay. He just sounds like a bad man. Very bad man. No, we're not on his side. You had a rough childhood, but that's no excuse, William. Hmm. In June, Ellen sold the remaining shares and in August they moved again, adjacent to where William stabled his horse. Movers would have made an absolute killing off of these two because they moved house quite a lot of times. There you go. With the money from the shares, the couple had a week's holiday in Wolverhampton with a drinking friend of William's and Ellen bought new jewellery. William Mm. continued to assault his wife throughout the latter half of 1888 And by the first week of December, Ellen's windfall was nearly spent and William had to sell his horse and cart so that they could afford to buy food. The next we hear of their movements is the 19th of January, 1889, when Burry told Ellen's sister he had found manufacturing work for himself in Dundee. Crocodiles. And this paid him £2 per week. And he managed to get a job as well for Ellen, where she would get £1 a week if she wanted to have the job. He told his landlord, William Smith, a different tale. He told him that they were emigrating to Brisbane, Australia. Where Crocodile Dundee may have been at some point. Oh, there's a theme! (laughs) Uh, When asked by Smith which dock they were sailing from, William replied, quote, Ah, that's what you want to know, like a lot more. I think he's maybe saying, you're asking that question for information, but I know you want more information than that. You're just being nosy. Okay. And that was probably to cover up the fact they weren't actually going to Brisbane, Australia. They were, in fact, going to Dundee. Yeah. William asked Smith to build him a strong trunk to transport his belongings and was very particular about the measurements of that box. Smith was surprised he wanted such a large trunk, as the only possessions he noticed the couple had were clothing. Though he did notice that William always appeared to have plenty of money and jewellery about his person. Smith later told the police, the police might be involved at some point, who knows why, he told them... Well, I was about to say, I'm a little bit worried about what ends up in this trunk. Well, (laughs) you'll find out. Uh, So Smith later told the police that William had been lately rather strange in his manner. Mm. On the 19th of January, 1889, the Burries travelled to Dundee on the London packet steamer Cambria, which was lying at London Dock. The couple occupied a second-class cabin and stayed on board overnight. During the... I feel like you could do that trip in a day these days. These trains must be very slow. You probably could these days, yes. During the crossing, the other passengers noticed the couple appeared to be on good terms with one another, although were hesitant in revealing details about their past. During the trip, it was noticed Burry seemed most anxious about a large, heavy, whitewashed case he had taken on board. They arrived at Dundee on the evening on the 20th of January, 1889, and the following morning they rented a room above a bar at 43 Union Street. The buddies stayed for only eight nights before they moved on the 29th of January to a squat at 113 Princes Street, which was a basement flat under a shop. 
Now, I got confused at this point because I thought, we're now on Princess Street. We must be in Edinburgh. But I assume there's an, a Princess Street also in Dundee because they're in Dundee for the rest of the story. Fair enough. William had obtained the key under false pretenses by telling the letting agents that he was a viewer interested in renting the property. Meanwhile, Ellen found a job as a cleaner at a local mill, but she quit a day li- after a day. She was like, nah, oh. I don't clean your mill. <laughs> William continued to drink heavily, often, and uh, this was often with a decorator called David Walker, who was repainting the public house at which William would frequent. Neighbours at Princess Street rarely saw the couple, though on the occasions when they did, they noticed uh, they noted that he was often drunk. Mm. He had a reputation. Ellen was only spotted sporadically at night on her trips to the communal water pump. William ran all other errands, such as replenishing candles, firewood and bread. The article that I read was very specific, that they wanted candles, that's, that, Yeah, that's quite a shopping bread. list. On the 4th of February, William went to Janet Martin's provisions store and asked if she had a length of rope. For what purposes, she did not ask. Hmm. A short while later, Ellen stopped being spotted. Her husband, however, is spotted on two or three occasions, again, always drunk. After buying the rope, he spent the rest of the day observing cases at the sheriff court from the public gallery, and again on the 7th of February. Now, on the 10th of February, he visited his acquaintance, Walker, the drinking pal, who Mm -hmm. lent him a newspaper that featured a woman's suicide by hanging. Walker asked Burry to look up any news of Jack the Ripper, who was going about not long, just around about this time, at which point Burry threw down the newspaper with a fright. At approximately 7pm, Sunday the 10th of February 1889, William Henry Burry walked into Bell Street Police Station and announced to Lieutenant Parr, quote, I'm Jack the Ripper and I want to give myself up. Okay, this was a plot twist I wasn't expecting. (laughs) Oh, okay. Parr, not sure if he was dealing with a drunk or a madman, asked William, why he called himself Jack the Ripper. And he said, I'm him all right, and if you go along to my house in Princess Street, you'll find the body of a woman packed up in a box and cut up. I flipping knew something was going to happen with this box. (laughs) Nothing great can happen with a crate. It was always going to be bad. He gave officers the key to the property, telling them, quote, you will know it at once because there's a re- there are red curtains on the front window. Police officers visited Princess Street and began a search by candlelight. The apartment was bare of possessions. The only items in the two rooms were a small bed piled high with clothing and a large whitewashed packing case. Opening the box, they revealed the leg and foot of a female. Proceeding no further, they summoned doctors Templeman and Stalker, who proceeded to examine the contents. They discovered the naked and mutilated body of Ellen Burry. Mm. She had been strangled and her abdomen had been ripped open. The wound was so severe that 12 inches of intestines were protruding through her stomach. Oh my god. Apart from the wound to the abdomen, there were a total of nine other knife wounds to the body. 
The box, which was clearly too small to accommodate the body, had been packed tightly with books and clothing. Ellen's head had been forced to one side of the shoulder, and the left leg was broken and twisted to such a degree that the foot rested on her left shoulder. The right leg had been smashed in order to fit into the box. The body was lying on its back on a petticoat and a piece of cloth. A long-bladed knife, which had been used to commit the crime, lay nearby, along with a rope complete with strands of hair still attached. It later transpired that William had lived with this box and its contents for several days, and had, e- had in- uh, and <laughs> and had even invited some male lad lad lads pals to play cards, and they used the crate as a table. No, they didn't. They did. No, they didn't. They absolutely did. Oh, no. Ew. Grim. In the days following the murder, he tried unsuccessfully to borrow a chopper from his neighbour, Marjorie Smith, who joked to him, quote, you're not Jack the Ripper, are you? Oh, God. (laughs) Yes. To which he replied, quote, I do not know so much about that. Now, earlier on I told you that he was threatening Ellen. He was standing over Ellen, threatening her with a knife. And I mentioned he was using his left hand. Okay. Am I wrong in saying that Jack the Ripper was believed to be left-handed? I've got a feeling you might be correct in saying that. Yeah, that's why I kept that in, because I felt like it was relevant. Ooh. Police officers also discovered at Princess Street two chalk-written messages, one behind a tenement door stating, Jack the Ripper is at the back of the door, and one on a stairwell wall leading down to the flat, which said Jack the Ripper is in this cellar. The newspapers attributed the handwriting to a small boy, though did not offer an explanation why they considered this to be the case, though it is assumed it was due to poor grammar. The writing, however, was said to be old and predated this murder. Mm. William was detained on suspicion of having taken the life of his wife by either strangulation or stabbing. This information, it was noted, he took... Uh, this information, it was noted, he received calmly. A search of his person revealed his wife's bank book showing several pounds in credit, a watch and some jewellery. Detectives of Scotland Yard were sent to interview William and collect as much information as possible about him to ascertain his exact movements during the period he lived in London. The police discovered that he was in the habit of carrying a knife about his person and that he was absent from his lodgings on the nights both Annie Chapman and Mary Kelly were murdered and that his manner the following day was suggestive of a madman. So those are two ripper victims. Yeah. For those who are not aware. William, while awaiting trial, told the police that on Monday the 4th of February 1889, he and his wife had been out having a good time. So good a time that they could not remember going to bed. The following morning, William woke to find his wife dead on the floor, having been strangled with a cord. Having no recollection of whether he had committed the crime or not, and frightened and fearing he would be apprehended as Jack the Ripper, was so suddenly seized with a mad impulse, he picked up a large, sharp and finely ground knife, which happened to be lying conveniently nearby, 
and plunged it into her abdomen. He then decided to conceal the body in the trunk. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, William. Whatever. (laughs) Detectives at this stage were sharply divided in their opinion as to the man's guilt in perpetrating the Whitechapel murders. Many believed his Jack the Ripper confession was bogus and that the real motive behind the wife's murder was to get his hands on her remaining money. They therefore concluded that the Dundee murder was a one-off. The post-mortem revealed that Ellen Burry had been dead for several days and had not strangled herself as originally claimed. Her body was formally identified by her sister, Margaret Coney, who had travelled up from London to do so. Oh, God. That's awful. I can't imagine having to do that. William, despite his initial confession, pleaded not guilty to his wife's murder and genuinely believed he had the chance of a reprieve. His solicitor asked for a second post-mortem. Dr. David Lennox, an experienced Dundee surgeon, carried out this second post-mortem, assisted by Dr. William Kinnear, and presented a comprehensive 14-page report. His conclusion was that Ellen had committed suicide. This was a huge blow to the police, who now called in Dr. Henry Littlejohn. Yes! Here he is! <laughs> who then performed a third post-mortem. And his okay. findings were that Ellen had in fact been murdered, though he was unable to ascertain if the mutilations had taken place before or after her death. There he is, little John. Just you chiming must in. Li- you, exactly, and I hope they listened to him because he was a very clever man. Yes. Well, William's trial commenced on the 28th of March. During this trial, which lasted about 13 hours, it was learned that William had worked little over the last year or so and constantly demanded money from his wife. When his requests were refused, he would strike her. A neighbour at Princess Street, David Duncan, on the night of the murder, heard three loud screams coming from the Burry's flat. Little was said in William's defence throughout the trial, though the defence did attempt to question the morals of Ellen. Classic throw the victim under the bus strategy. Honestly. The jury returned a verdict of guilty, saying, quote, We strongly recommend him to mercy. Lord Young seemed to be staggered by their recommendation. May I ask, he inquired, on what grounds you commend this prisoner to mercy? It was explained to the court that the jury viewed the medical evidence as conflicting. Lord Young refused to accept such a verdict and instructed the jury to retire again for further discussion. They soon returned, now with a unanimous verdict of guilty, with no recommendation for mercy. Lord Young What's passed. changed? I know, probably just that he was like, no, go and no. <laughs> change your mind. Go and talk about it go again. Go away, change come your back and try again. <laughs> yeah, he just, he wasn't having it. So he passed the mandatory sentence for murder, which was, at the time, death by hanging. Yes. William, throughout his trial, was said to have remained calm and slept soundly each night. And the Dundee advisor on the 28th of March, 1989, described him as brainless. Oh. Lovely. A few days before the execution, Burry confessed to William Goff that he had killed Ellen. At the urging of Goff, William wrote a confession on the 22nd of April, 1889, which he asked to be withheld until after he was dead. 
William claimed that he had strangled Ellen without premeditation on the night of the 4th of February during a drunken row over money and that he had tried to dismember her body for disposal the next day but was too squeamish to continue. You still did a pretty bang up job, mate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. On the morning of his execution, Burry had breakfast of bread and butter, poached eggs and tea and enjoyed a ciggy cig ah. The magistrates then entered his cell, identified the convict to thank all present for their kindness, and he said to the warden, This is my last morning on earth. I freely forgive all who have given false evidence against me at my trial, as I hope God will forgive me. You've already admitted to it in your confession. I'm just here, like, they have it in writing now, mate. Like, it's over. <laughs> He's a numpty. He is brainless, after all. He is. On his walk to the scaffold, he was described as being calm and collected, dressed in a pair of dark trousers with a vest and a smart twills shooting coat, a a white linen collar and a blue necktie. It was said he looked as smart as if he was going to a wedding. Well, you're not. You're getting hanged. And he was (laughs) hanged. And in fact, was the last man to be hanged for murder in the city of Dundee. Oh! Yes! 5,000 people waited outside for the hoisting of the black flag. The body was buried within the precincts of the prison. Just before his execution, when the hangman, James Berry, note that James that William Burry's name was Berry in a census, and now yes. he's getting done in by James Berry. Ooh. Ooh. Uh, he tried to obtain, obtain a confession for the Whitechapel murders. William turned to the hangman and said, quote, I suppose you think you're clever to hang me, with the emphasis firmly placed on the word me, before continuing, quote, I suppose you think you're clever because you are going to hang me and because you are going to hang me, you are not going to get anything out of me. So, okay. he's got the attitude of a seven-year-old playground child. <laughs> Although William never actually confessed to the Ripper crimes, the hangman, hangman James Berry always remained convinced that he was, in fact, Jack the Ripper. According to Berry, the detective sent from London to investigate Burry's movements asked, asked Berry for his opinion, and he replied, I think it's him right enough. And we agree with you, replied one of the detectives. Mm. Quote, We know all about his movements in the past and we are quite satisfied that you have hanged Jack the Ripper and there will be no more Whitechapel crimes. In an article entitled After Executing 197 Criminals, Barry Opposes Death Penalty, which is a very, it's a wordy title for an article. It is a bit. It's not snappy. Make it snappy. James Berry said he believed Jack the Ripper was actually John Henry Bury. Or Burry, spelt with an E. Oh. The keeper of a cat's meat shop in the east end of London. People who knew him used to see him at work with long knives. Berry, in the article, went on to say, quote, Behind this shop were rooms which he used to let to women on the streets. During his absence, one of these degraded women broke into his room and stole some of his savings. This made the man so mad that he swore an oath that if he could not find out who it was... He would murder every woman woman 
who had used his house. This threat he proceeded to carry out. When in the cell about to pinion him, I said, Well, Jack the Ripper, have you anything to say? If so, say it now, as you you will have no chance later. No, was the reply. If anyone stole anything from me, I'd kill the lot to find the right one. I'm not going to give you any big lines. Go on with your work, Barry. I'll, I'll not say anything. It's a bit strange because there's two men whose names might be Burry. Mm-hmm. One's definitely spelt B-U-R-Y and one's got an E in it. Mm-hmm. So potentially there's been misconstruing of information, misinterpretation of things. Mm-hmm. Because there's two men that this man, James Berry, has executed who might have been Jack the Ripper. So Yeah. Okay. Berry later recollected his first sighting of Burry, the our Burry from Dundee. Mm-hmm. I confess that a strange feeling took possession of me. He was a peculiar looking man and undoubtedly he had the air of the uncanny about him. He was slightly over five feet in height with a haunted look in his eye. There was a mysterious something about him which repelled me. Now, despite Berry's colourful colorful description of Burry, there is no evidence Burry ever let rooms or had a cat's meat shop. So these two men are separate men. Berry may possibly be confusing the account of William Henry Burry with recent Ripper suspect. Oh God, there's another one. James Hardiman, a horsemeat butcher whose mother Harriet ran a cat's meat shop from 29 Hanbury Street, the address where Annie Chapman was subsequently murdered. So there is potentially a lot of confusion in the accounts of James Berry as to who, who's who, who's what, who, whatever. Yes, yes. Okay, so was William Henry Berry Jack the Ripper? That's a big question. Good question. Traditionally, five murders are attributed to the serial killer Jack the Ripper, who terrorised the East End of London between August and November of 1888. Authorities are not agreed on the exact number of the the Ripper's victims, and at least 11 Whitechapel murders between April 1888 and February 1891 were included in the same extensive police investigation. All the crimes remain unsolved. So there could be way more than the five that people know for sure. Mm -hmm. At five foot three tall and just under 10 stone, William broadly appears to fit in build and height. Some of the descriptions eyewitnesses gave of Jack the Ripper. He was described as a good looking with sharp, as good looking with sharp features, a dark complexion, a fair moustache and a full beard and quite respectable in appearance. Another report described him as having side whiskers. Mary Ann Cox described a man seen in the company of Mary Kelly shortly before her murder. This man later to be nicknamed Blotchy Face, which uh, so Cox described this man as short, stout, shabbily dressed, bearded with side whiskers and carrying a pot of ale. There is a photo of um, Buddy, but it would be interesting to see if he had a beard and side whiskers, uh, or if maybe he had taken them off when he left London mm-hmm. or whatever. Don't know. Claims that Burry could have been the Ripper began to appear in newspapers shortly after his arrest. Like Burry, the Ripper had inflicted abdominal wounds on his victims immediately after their deaths, and Burry lived in Bow near Whitechapel from October 1887 to January 1889, which placed him fairly near where the murders took place and at the right time. 
-hmm. We know he left London in a hurry and lied about where he was going. Somebody by the chalk somebody by the chalk messages at his flat, possibly his wife, suspected that he was the ripper. It is also possible that Burry wrote the messages himself as an act of self-importance. There is no record to show if the chalk messages were ever compared at Golston Street were ever compared to the chalk messages at Burry's flat. He also murdered his wife in a manner similar to the Ripper murders, strangulation followed by mutilation of the abdomen. We know that William went to Wolverhampton on holiday, possibly in July or August 1888, for exactly how long is still uncertain. It would be unlikely to have been for an extended period as Wolverhampton is not known as a holiday destination. The purpose of going there was probably to visit Burry's family, as they were aware, as we are aware that he had family ties there. Martha Tubram, Tabram, if she was a ripper victim, was murdered. So she was another person who was murdered. Mm-hmm. If she was in fact a ripper victim, was murdered on the seventh of August, and Marianne Nichols, who was a, defi- a definite ripper victim, was killed on the thirty-first. Confirming exactly when William was in Wolverhampton could either eliminate him completely as a Ripper suspect, or if the timelines still work out, then it's still there's still a high chance that it could have been him. It's mm. just unclear if he was in London or if he was in Wolverhampton yeah. at those murder times. Okay, we're nearly done. <laughs> in conversation with her neighbours, Marjorie Smith, who ran the shop above the Burry's Prince Street flat in Dundee, asked them what sort of work was this you Whitechapel folk have been about, letting Jack the Ripper kill so many people? William did not answer her, but Ellen replied, Jack the Ripper is quiet now. She reportedly told another neighbour, Jack the Ripper is taking a rest. That There is argument that the reason she said this is because she actually knew who Jack the Ripper was and where he was. Because otherwise, why would how would she know if Jack, how the Jack Ripper was what he was up to if he was taking a rest or not? How would she know? Or was she Jack the Ripper? I mean, that would be an interesting twist as well. That would be one hell of a twist, wouldn't it? Yeah. Others contend that Buddy only imitated the Ripper, citing differences between their crimes. Ellen was strangled with a rope and sustained comparatively few knife wounds compared to the Ripper's victims whose throats were cut prior to sustaining deep abdominal, abdominal, abdominal slashes. Ellen's throat was not cut, and only relatively shallow cuts were made to her abdomen. The identity of the Whitechapel murderer is unknown, and over 100 suspects, in addition to William, have been proposed. While some Ripper writers consider William a more likely culprit than many of the other suspects, other writers dismiss the theory because, quote, as happens all too frequently in this field, the theorising appears to have a few disturbing leaps of logic, as well as mere anecdotes used as evidence. But that's, that's the story of the murder of Ellen Burry and her murderer, William Burry. Wow, that is quite the story. Yeah, so he, he was quite a wee trickster. He was confusing. He was all over the shop. They moved house a lot. They're very suspicious folks. Yes. I would be suspicious of them. Hmm. Yeah. Do you think he was Jack the Ripper? I don't think I do think he was Jack the Ripper. Okay. But I do enjoy... There's a lot of things line up nicely. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. that he moved away from London the same time that the Ripper killing stopped. Yeah. The style was similar, although not identical. Mm-hmm. But then there could be an element of if he was Jack the Ripper, when he was doing what he usually did to the women, but doing it to Ellen, being mm-hmm. her husband might have been a reason to not slash her throat because that would be very up in her face and it would be quite personal yes. and yes. that maybe was too confronting. And maybe when he tried to do the stabbings and the abdominal slashes and stuff, he was just a bit squeamish because it was his wife. Who knows? Um, well, he didn't have to kill her. No, this is true. He could have just not done that. <laughs> he could have just um, not done it. But it's there is a, there are some parallels... That are interesting. Mm. That could make you argue that he is Jack the Ripper. But yeah. yeah, I don't I'm not I'm not convinced by it, but it is interesting. Yes, it's a very good theory. Yeah. yeah, but I also find it quite strange that the last man hanged in Dundee for murder, which is a last, people know things about lasts and firsts. Yes. That we didn't I wasn't aware of him full stop. And the fact that he was then Jack, potentially Jack the Ripper on top of that yes. is wild. Yes, you think Dundee would be prolific. screaming and shouting? We might have, we might have hanged Jack the Ripper as our final hurrah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's quite the claim to fame. I will say that much. For it, it is. Well, there you are. Do you have a? Do you think he might have been the one? Do you think he did it? I don't, I don't know. I, th- I mean, I feel like things do line up quite nicely. But yeah. also, remember, if we skip a few episodes back to Dr. Bell's episode, who was a contemporary of Little John, and Bell got involved with the Ripper case. True. So you never know. He might have gone, actually, I do think it might, that, it might be that guy, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Which is very interesting. Well... Henry Littlejohn, he gets about. He was in Edinburgh a lot, but then he was like, no, I'm going to go to... He really did. Honestly, yeah. he was quite the guy. He will yeah. probably get his own segment one day because he did lots of things, particularly when it came to, like, murders, except, well, he didn't personally do them, but you know what I mean. No, yeah, he was involved, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, I <laughs> find it funny... solving. Yes, exactly. I find it funny that last week when we were asking where would we go in Scottish history, you said to the period where you could then have a chat with Belle and yeah. Little John. Yeah. And I had already written this story ready for this week. Well, how strange. I know. I know. Okay, so you know the reason that we were late last week was because I was on holiday and yes. didn't have any of my recording equipment with me on holiday for obvious reasons. But actually, on my way there, I went, we went past quite a lot of places that you mentioned, such as Wolverhampton, and Bolton and Birmingham on our way oh. there, <laughs> which was wow, it's, it's just like you were well. just listing off places that we stopped. To that be perfectly honest, I have never been to a single one of the places that I mentioned apart from Dundee. Well, that's fair enough. One and is London, better than none, obviously. And yeah, London. Well, this is true. Yes, it's true. Of course, but um, yes, that was because I was on my way off down to the Devon coast, which was a delight and a half. And I was staying in a little town called Torquay, which is Ooh. on the coast. And it was a delight and it was lovely and it was just lovely. It's a lovely mm-hmm. time. And we used to go there all the time when like, we were kids anyway. So it was lovely. So this story is actually about a very famous person that comes from said town. 
Oh. Yes. I can't yes. make a guess because I don't know anyone from Turkey. Okay, you might work it out quite quickly, but let's okay. just get on in. Okay. So, Agatha Mary Clarissa Miller is born on the 15th of September, 1890, in the town of Turkey on the Devon coast. She is born into an upper-middle-class family, and she enjoys a relatively comfortable life because they were quite well off. They yeah. were quite well off. That'll do it for you. That'll do it. So she is quite the inquisitive child and she teaches herself how to read and is fluent by the age of five. Jeezy peeps. Yes, that's quite, quite the claim. Quite the claim. At the age of four, I could do the adult version of the alphabet. So I didn't the give any of your abacadefagaha. Didn't do oh, any right, of that okay. nonsense. <laughs> I was like, A, B, C, D, darling. <laughs> Say it properly. The proper way. Yeah. And by the age of 18, I realised it was quite a jump here, but I couldn't find much on the intervening period. That's okay. <laughs> about what she did with her time. Uh, but she started to write her own short stories. But in this intervening period, the family do actually live through a certain degree of financial hardship. Now, not like people living on breadline financial hardship but like they had quite a lot of money and ended up having not as much money which would have been quite a shock to the system for people from like wealthy backgrounds and although Agatha is sent to boarding school in both the UK and in Paris she isn't a fan of the regimented lifestyle as she'd actually previously been homeschooled so okay Fair. I can imagine that being, like, yeah, that would be... not a fun time. No. No. So in the October of 1912, Agatha attends a dance where she is introduced to an army officer that had been seconded to the Royal Flying Corps, and his name was Archibald Archie Christie. Mm-hmm. Ha-ha. So Archie proposes to Agatha three months after meeting her and they are married on Christmas Eve 1914, which is the first Christmas of World War I. Oh, happy times. Happy times. The day before, they all got out the trenches and kicked a football about. Yeah. 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 That story makes me feel all sorts of conflicting ways. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. It makes me sad. It does, yes. Um, So whilst her husband was away, Agatha volunteered as a nurse during the war before working as a dispenser after she trained as an apothecary assistant, which is a great job title. (laughs) Yeah, I want to be an apothecary assistant. I mean, I think now we'd say like pharmacy technician, but personally, I think apothecary assistant is a much better phrase. Yeah, bring that back. Absolutely. So Agatha was known to be a big fan of a detective novel and was known to be fond of Wilkie Collins' The Woman in White, which is quite a famous sort of gothic mystery novel. And she also enjoyed the stories written by a certain Mr. Arthur Conan Doyle. There he is. Yes, there you go. And he will pop up again in this story. (laughs) Oh, yes, I'm sure he will. Um, So she decides to give it a go herself. Because why not? Do you know what? It was a different time by that point. They were by nineteen fourteen and after. They were like, let's just let women have pains. 
Exactly. Exactly. It's such we'll a luxury them for that. them. We'll grant them that. <laughs> so, The Mysterious Affair at Styles is published in 1916 and it introduces the world to Hercule Poirot, a Belgian detective that relies on his quote, little grey cells to solve the sometimes most creative of murders. Yes. Yes. And he is quite, quite the interesting chap. My yes. personal favourite is uh, Sushi. Sushi? I can never remember his name, so in my head it sounds like Sushi. <laughs> yes okay yeah i get your Is point i get i get it. david sushi yes yeah david sushi sushi yeah. that's him Yep, that's him. Um, so Poirot is arguably Christie's most famous creation, largely alongside Miss Marple, who is a character that is an amateur consulting detective that first appeared in 1927. Also, I don't feel like Miss Marple gets enough recognition. She's great. Yeah, I mean, any kind of slightly sassy older woman. Exactly, exactly. She was. She's like... One of the most badass spinsters ever. She made spinsters cool. It's hard to do in those days. Yes. So, Christie enjoyed a certain degree of success with the initial few Poirot novels. It said of her debut work, and I quote, You may safely set a wager with yourself that until you've heard Monsieur Poirot's final word on the mysterious affair at Styles, you will be kept guessing at its solution and will most certainly never lay down this entertaining book. High praise. High praise indeed. So yes, she was quite lauded for being like quite clever with her plots. But, you know, in 1926, Christy finds herself at the centre of a mysterious affair herself. Hmm. Yes. So in the April of 1926, Christy's much-loved mother passes away. Agatha had been her mother's closest confidant upon her father's death many years prior. After this loss, it is said that Christie fell into a deep depression. Fair enough. Absolutely fair enough. Absolutely fair enough. And just to add insult to injury, her husband asks for a divorce four months later in August. What an Wally. What a Wally. Yep. Yep. Where's so Wally? Actually, there he is. <laughs> right there asking for a divorce. Yeah. Um, so he had been conducting an affair with Nancy Neal, who was a 25-year-old secretary who was 10 years Agatha's junior. So it's the classic going for a younger... Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Quote-unquote yeah. upgrade. Yeah, absolutely. So... One must remember that in a time such as the 1920s, appearance and proper behaviour was often the foundations on which the upper classes built their empire, particularly in the quote-unquote Old England circles. It was very much that kind of stiff upper lip mentality. Mm -hmm. To have her husband conducting an affair and with this request for divorce, meaning he wished to marry this younger woman would have likely been a great source of embarrassment for Agatha. Yeah. Yep. So on the 3rd of December, 1926, the Christies have a quarrel 
at their home. Archie says he is going away with friends and included in this party is Miss Neil and Agatha is not invited. Yes. We've all been there, Agatha, don't worry. Yeah, it's fine. You really wouldn't want to go, Agatha. I can't imagine it being a fun time for you. So later that evening, Agatha leaves her daughter Rosalind in the care of maids, but does not tell them where she is going. Fourth mm. of December, nineteen twenty-six, and Agatha has not yet returned home. Mm. Yes. So initial searches discover a rather odd scene some miles away from the Christie home. Agatha's car is discovered partially submerged in bushes. Hey, we were talking about bushes earlier. <laughs> hey, maybe that's why I was I was chilling with Agatha Christie. That's what was happening. Maybe that's why. Um, at Newlands Corner, which is in Guildford in Surrey, the headlights remain on. There's a suitcase and coat in the back seat. And despite the scene appearing to be a car accident, there's no driver. Bye-bye, driver. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Agatha Christie has seemingly disappeared. Ooh. Yes, her disappearance becomes front page news across the country, with one newspaper even offering a one hundred pound reward for her return. Sounds like nothing, but it was about six grand in like oh, okay. today's money. So it was substantial. Yeah. If, if there was ever a finder. A £100 reward out for me I'd come back just to tell them off Be like, how yeah. <laughs> dare you Undervalue me Exactly um, And this story Even makes it across the pond To the New York Times Oh Yes So in a, Also in a rather unconventional But a classic Doyle-esque move Arthur Conan Doyle gives a glove belonging to Christie to a clairvoyant in the hope of finding any kind of lead. I want to know, did he go down to did he go down to where she was living to say, Hi, can I borrow a glove? Oh, by the way, I'm Arthur Conan Doyle. I would have I would love to see that conversation play out. I'm not gonna lie. He gets all wrapped up in everything. He really does. He likes he likes to get involved. How did he have any time to write a story? It's very true. Um, but as the days pass, there's little to no evidence of where Christy went or what could have possibly happened to her. Yet, there's one major, quite obvious theory here. Is there not? I mean... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Archie Christie and Nancy Neal become major suspects in what was still, for the moment, a missing persons case. Mm. And a local body of water known as Silence Lake is dredged just in case Christie should have met with an unfortunate fate. Oh. Yeah, so they really did actually follow this lead. Because they thought... Her looking, them looking to marry, him looking for a divorce, Agatha not necessarily, quite rightly, like playing the game. Yeah. Could something underhand could have happened? Pretend. Yes. So Agatha Christie remains untraceable 10 days after she leaves the house that night. But the head waiter at the hydropathic hotel Harrogate 
notices something rather familiar about a recently arrived guest. He believes that a woman, her given name at check-in, Teresa Neal, which is the surname of the husband's mistress. Yes. Just saying. May actually be Christy in disguise. So the story goes that Archie, accompanied by police, arrive at the hotel and witness this woman purported to be Christy entering the dining room, sitting at a table and reading from a newspaper, the front page of which is reporting on her disappearance. Oh. Yes. It is said that Archie approached her, but she didn't seem to know who he was, stating that, quote, her brother had finally arrived. The Christies had been married for almost 12 years at this point. Yeah. So Agatha is taken to her sister's house where she was kept, quote, in guarded hall, gates locked, telephone cut off, and callers turned away. Mm-hmm. Mm. She did seem to legitimately be suffering from amnesia, unsure how she got to the hotel or who she even was herself. Or at least, this was the reason Archie Christie gave, supported by the opinion of two doctors. Oh, Nelly. Yes. So Christie had also reportedly written letters prior to her disappearance. One was sent to her brother-in-law saying that she was going to take a break in Yorkshire and another was to the police stating that she feared for her life. Two well, quite different letters there. <laughs> yeah. And pff, what a disaster if she got them swapped over because they'd be like... Could you imagine? The police, the police would be like, <laughs> great, we don't know you. Yep. Who be you? Um, so how or why did Agatha Christie disappear? The short answer is... Nobody actually knows. Oh no. Yes. The one mystery one of, Agatha didn't it's resolve. It's one of those stories. <laughs> so the generally given explanation is the amnesia theory. That Christy, having suffered from significant psychological distress throughout that year, it had been a bad year, had some sort of nervous breakdown and Archie asking for this divorce was just the last straw, basically. Right. Some thought it was a publicity stunt done in order to draw attention to her books. One of the most famous mystery writers finds herself at the centre of a rather peculiar mystery herself. It's not a terrible theory. It does kind of check out. It it makes kind of sense. Yep. Others think it may have actually been a ploy in order to publicly embarrass her husband and his mistress. And it did sort of work. Because they did become persons of interest to the police. And what could have potentially happened if Christy hadn't been spotted in that hotel? Mm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? At what point would the police kind of go and actually maybe this might be a murder? And in perhaps the most unusual twist, Christy doesn't mention this disappearance in her own autobiography. And it appears it wasn't spoken about within the family. It's as if it simply didn't happen. So literally, she herself did, does not even not didn't acknowledge that this was a thing. I mean, how good would it have been if she'd then written a spin-off of this experience? 
into a yeah. Hercule Poirot novel. Yeah, exactly. But it's just, it's really, really interesting that this was not taught. It was like all over the papers, but the family did not talk about this at mm. all, including Agatha herself. So Agatha and Archie Christie divorced in 1928, Archie marrying Nancy Neal a week after the divorce had been finalised. You stay classy there, Archie. <laughs> Either they had it all planned ready or it was a really boring wedding. Yeah, <laughs> just nothing happened at it. Nothing happened. They didn't have a cake. They had no flowers. Exactly. So Christy retains her ex-husband's surname as her work is under that name and it had become part of her professional identity. She didn't, like... There was no point in changing it because she was Agatha Christie, though. Even at that point. The fame. The fame. But whilst on an archaeological dig in Baghdad, Christie meets Max Malowin, who is an archaeologist 13 years her junior. They would go on to marry in Edinburgh in 1930. You little minx. Go on yourself, Agatha. Well done. Well done, yes. (laughs) Um, And they would actually remain married until the end of their lives. So it was very much like she did find a nice human being in the end. That's good. Which is good. So they acquire Greenway Estate in 1938, which is a property on the River Dart and was used as a summer residence by the family. It is now in the care of the National Trust and it houses several of Christie's belongings, including first edition books and her infamous typewriter, with which she'd written some of her most famous novels. Now, when I was on holiday, I did actually go and visit Greenway. It is the most stunning property that ever did exist. It's like... I honestly can't put into words how beautiful just that area of the country is. But you can go into what was her study. That's cool. And they do have all her first edition novels. And they do have her typewriter sitting out. But it's not like blocked off or anything. It's just like there. And <sighs> see the temptation to touch it. <laughs> yeah. I can I'm imagine. Like, I, just, I just want to press one key. That's all I want to do. Just spell and out Poirot. Exactly, just anything. But also, as a side note, I, of co- I've said I'm a National Trust for Scotland member, and I got in for free with my National Trust for Scotland card. It was great. I wouldn't have thought that applied. Absolutely does. You can use your NTS card for English National Trust properties. Ah. It's Bonus. all just one big old trust. It really is. It really yeah. is. So, the... Fun fact about Greenway for you, because we like that. Um, the final episode to be shot of ITV series Agatha Christie's Poirot, starring David Sushi, as we were speaking it about is. earlier, <laughs> as the eponymous detective, was filmed at Greenway, and the property owns a signed script from the production. And it transpires that David Sushi and I have quite similar handwriting. Oh. Strangely enough, it's quite long and it's quite angular and kind of yeah, it's very it was very odd. Interesting. <laughs> very similar handwriting. Um, so Christie's disappearance still continues to intrigue to this day, with there still no concrete answer as to what happened to her in those ten days. Nobody knows. Right. She herself possibly didn't know <laughs> what happened in that time. 
if the amnesia theory is to be believed. Yeah. So it is still like a great unsolved mystery. But a 2008 episode of a certain BBC sci-fi series offered a rather unusual theory as to what caused the author's strange flight. I mean, I, th- I know what you're going to talk about. You're going to talk about the Doctor Who. But I am going to talk about <laughs> This sounds like the kind of episode I could get on board with. You probably would like it. I mean, there does feature quite a big alien in it, but I think you would like it. So, The Unicorn and the Wasp, which was an episode of Doctor Who written by Gareth Roberts, uses Christie's disappearance as a plot point, and the episode itself largely follows the classic detective novel form that Christie was famed for. It does kind of play out as like an episode of Poirot. That's cool. It is really cool. It is really, really fun. Honestly, I think you would like it. And there's very good, very good performances in it. And quite a few famous people in that episode as well. Okay. But um, yeah, that's the mysterious disappearance of Agatha Christie. Wow. Well, I saw an article heading about something to do with Agatha Christie. And I bookmarked it in my brain. Well, there you go. And I never actually got round to it. So you just told me something. It means I don't have to go and read it now, which is good. You can close that bookmark now. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Delete. <laughs> Why is that not something that people know so much of? Because obviously Agatha Christie is incredibly famous, but I feel I've never spoken to anyone about this incident before. Yeah, well, I think that's the thing, is that it very much was kind of buried. Yeah. She herself. Her own autobiography, and she doesn't even talk about the fact that she fully went AWOL for 10 days, and people legit thought something really bad had happened to her. Wild. Yeah, it honestly is crazy. You couldn't make it up that one of like our greatest detective writers of all time was at the centre of a major mystery herself. Yeah, a mystery to all. I want to know... Uh... If only there was like some kind of CCTV back in those days. Or if only, you know, you know, yep, just something. She could have left like breadcrumbs or something. If you go to the woods today, do 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 do. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. That was a bit more 1926 standards. Agatha Christie was came from Torquay, so that's why that little town is very, very famous because of her association with her. I didn't know that. It might well be famous. I've seen it written down. I've heard it said. Don't know well, anything about it. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> didn't even we can know go Aggie. one day. It's fine. I didn't it's know fine. Aggie came from there. I quite like. I mean, I'm a big Poirot fan, like the yeah, TV I show, like and I do have like a certain. I do have some favorite novels, like Poirot novels, but. <laughs> She was very much a woman of her time, yeah. and it's and women women of a certain class of a certain time. Okay. So if you read her novels, some views have not aged per, like on kind of like gender and stuff like that. Okay. Haven't aged particularly well. So if you are going to read them, some you should take with a pinch of salt and remember when they were written. <laughs> okay, I can take that. It's that kind. It's that kind of novel. They can be quite blunt. Um, I think they. I do like a mystery novel, and I do like murders and things like that to read. But mm-hmm. 
I do also like modern thought and modern um, opinion. Yeah, that also so, help, that always helps. I'd probably rather watch the television adaptations. Yeah, that's fair enough. Because also yeah. with the television adaptations as well, they attempted to fix what are deemed like problem books, quote unquote. So ones that were like that Christy herself didn't deem particularly like well thought out. Some of the TV adaptations have tried to kind of like iron them out to make them okay. slightly more like palatable. Because yeah, she yeah. She was definitely a woman of her time. She was like a very clever person. I feel like you have to be a clever person to write detective novels. Yeah, for sure. To, yeah, like, to come up with to the, like, the twists yeah. and the turns. Exactly. So she was a very, very intelligent woman. Yeah. But if you are going to read her stuff, please bear in mind <laughs> when these books were, they were written and whom they were written by. Okay. Um, okay. And if not, just go and pop on a wee... David Sushi Poirot, you can't go wrong. You can't go wrong. I think I've probably seen them all about five times, but you can't go wrong. Yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah. They never got. You never. They never got old. And even like a wee Miss Marple, Julia McKenzie, fully how I imagined Miss Marple. See what happens to me is that I think of Miss Marple as Agatha Christie. All right. Okay. Well, I can so see the, why. The image I have of Agatha Christie in my mind is Miss Marple. Oh, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> that, um, well, that makes sense. But it's just my brain confused about who's who. That's quite all right. As always, please pop along to our Instagram and our Facebook. Give us likes and follows there. We post all of our corresponding photos up there every week. And it just gives you a nice little visual to go along with the story. Along with our Magic Hat Mondays, where you can give your responses to our questions. Our We Love a Link Wednesdays, where we join links between different stories that we've told. And of course, Fun Fact Friday, where you will learn some kind of fun Scottish fact. If you happen to have a question for the magical hat, if you either email us or message us it over, it will be written down on a little sheet of paper, folded up and go straight into the hat where it may feature on future episodes. Also, if you happen to own an Apple device, if you could head on over to that little purple logo of Apple Podcasts and leave us a little review, it would be much appreciated and helps us in the massive podcast algorithm of the world. And thank you for listening to A Wee Bit Gothic. Was that gothic? A wee bit. <laughs>